Ladies and gentlemen, in this episode, I talked to comedian Anthony Janot about many things such as a gig that we did recently. Well, not recently, but before all of this shit happened. Um, how he got started in comedy, his special, which is out now on Spotify, Apple Music, Bandcamp, called the Anthony, Anthony Janot, the comedy album. And there is a link in the description for that. And uh, the 2003 hit film... Made in Manhattan, so please welcome Anthony Janot. Good. I am actually kind of lost for words at how difficult this has been. Yeah, it has been, uh, yeah. Yeah, um, this is actually the second podcast I've tried to do today. Um, I knew, I tried using Zencaster, um, like, literally just before um, we got, just before we tried to do it, right, and Zencaster wasn't working properly. I'm having to get the people I was on with with them, send me their audio, and it's, yeah, it's been... It's been a bit of a day. Um, <laughs> how have you been? Yeah, I mean, I think as good as you can be at the moment. I think that the the the, uh, the bar has been lowered significantly, but yeah. uh, no reason to complain. Congratulations on the special, by the way. Yeah, it's it's cool. Um, I I don't know if I told you about this when we gigged last, but it was. At the time it was recorded, it was recorded as a sort of consideration for the radio and TV stuff back home, I guess, BBC equivalent. Um, And so then they passed on that option, which just means I'll do it all independently. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it's still exciting. It's, It's the show I took to Edinburgh in 2018 and... Um, I guess in the year between doing it at Edinburgh and recording it, tight ended up a little bit, and um, yeah, it's my. I, get, I mean, it's my fifth solo show, and it's the one I'm happiest with. So why not? Okay. Yeah, man. When did you record it? Uh, October 2019. So it's it's been sort of months in the in the pipeline with the ABC back home trying to figure out if they would or wouldn't use it. So, yeah. Or where did you record it? Did you record it back home or did you... Yeah, I, rec- I, I was back home for my sister's wedding um, and I thought just just for a recording thing, um, obviously you want a full as, as full a room as possible and I've been here for a couple of years. So I thought, yeah, uh, do two shows, sell them out, record it and see what happens. Like a fucking boss, man. Jeez, well done. Um, so... What's this special actually called? Um, so that is, uh, that is <laughs> so the show that I did was called Life Coach Age 14 and it is essentially that show, but for the purpose of appearing in as many searches as possible on Apple Music, Google Play, all of those digital platforms, it is called Stand Up Comedy Album. Ah, nice. It's, I like that. It's kind of, it's really simple. Um, and yeah, and I think a lot of people will be searching for a stand-up comedy album in general, and so that'll be one of the first things that comes up. So, how long have you actually been doing comedy for? 
So I, that's a, it's a tricky question. I did my first gig about 10 years ago. Um, nice. And I spent a year doing a bunch of gigs. Um, and in that first year, as I think a lot of comics do, did a lot of competitions. Um, and in my, fir- my, my first gig and Ronnie Chang, who is, you know, Worldwide superstar, crazy rich Asians, the daily yeah. show, Ronnie Chang. Um, uh, our first gigs were together and that meant through that year we did a lot of competitions together. Um, he won or honourable mention or did really well in Raw, which is, I guess, the So You Think That You Are Funny equivalent to, to here. And the, actually one of the prizes of Raw is you get taken to participate in So You Think You Are Funny. Um, And then there was another one in the middle that a guy who kind of won it and then quit a month later won. And then I won the third one. Um, So that was really cool. But then just meant I got a lot of gigs that I just fucking wasn't ready for. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So then I took a couple of years off and then, yeah, I'd say it's the last sort of five, six years that I've been gigging again probably nice so what do you mean like gigs that you weren't ready for um so like a lot of uh longer spots at more professional run clubs i guess like um because you know in your open spot in your open mic you can do what you think is well um but the kind of audience you get um, often in open mics, you know, you're either performing to comedians who s- the bar is quite low or you're performing to people who like to see things develop and so they're quite forgiving. Um, and when you start doing sort of the free spots at, at pro nights, they don't give a fuck if you're trying something new or if you're new. They just, like, be funny now, dickhead. Um, and I, <laughs> I wasn't ready to come with that be funny or fuck off kind mm. of energy. Um, so, yeah, it took me a couple years to get over that because I, I guess I, I, I thought I was, you know, skyrocketing to fame and fortune after I won the competition and, uh, yeah, and, and, and it was quite a, a big reality check. And also, like, I think, do you know what? When you start out comedy, you get so many rules from people, like, you know, you need to be funny in the first 15 seconds and da 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 And essentially, if you listened to everyone's rules and if everybody listened to everyone's rules that they hear at the start, everybody would doing, be doing one-liners and puns and shit like that. And when I started, that's what I was doing because that's what I was told to do. But I, I didn't enjoy it that much. And so, um, yeah, when I started again, I did a lot more storytelling stuff and the sort of stuff I like, which is... Uh, funnily enough, I mean, considering that I was saying I wasn't ready for doing clubs at the time I quit, it, it took me a lot longer to learn how to do what I do now in a way that, that translates. But it means that when I suck, I suck in a way that I enjoy. Like I'm trying to do something that I enjoy doing. And if it doesn't work, well, fuck it. I'm learning something. <laughs> well, it's kind of interesting you talk about the rules that people give you because I mean, I I don't I like advice because I usually ask for it, but 
what you have to be careful of is when you ask another comedian for advice, they're trying to make you into the comedian that they want to be. And that isn't necessarily who you are. Yeah. And I think, I think it's not just the comedian they want to be. It's also just like, there's so much of, look, anybody who thinks, at least in my opinion, anybody who thinks they can tell you what is and how it is funny is bullshitting. Like you see pros try new material with bravado and they've been doing this a million years. They've written 10 hours of solid gold and, you know, they go out and try new and sometimes it just doesn't fucking work because it, it is a little bit mysterious, even if, even if there are some things that help you work better sometimes than others. But so when somebody tries to tell you how, how to make a joke funny, they're, they're, they're doing like the most simplistic version and, and that's how you end up with all these rules that turn out to try and teach people how to write joke book jokes. Mm. Mm. I mean, yeah, there's, yeah, I mean, it's good to have a framework, I think. So there is some benefit to reading those books, but again, it's, you've got to kind of go out on your own. And I think that's the scariest and best thing about what we well, not what we do right now, because we're not doing it right now, but what we uh, what we will be going back to doing once this is over. Um, when do you think that will be? When do you think that will actually happen? When do you kind of anticipate that you'll be getting back on stage again? Look, I uh, genuinely have given up on trying to guess that. Um, yeah. I was listening to some... Uh, medical scientists talking on Australian radio this morning because obviously Australia's got a lot less cases and so um, are looking into, I guess, essentially what they're hoping they can do is get it to a point where they've had no new cases in sort of two, three months and then they can say, well, actually, if we just quarantine people coming in, we don't have it here. That That's still optimistically a chance for them in a way I don't think it is here. But even then they were saying like, um, essentially they said like indoor concerts or gigs or theatres um, or busy festival environments you can kiss goodbye. They're like, you know, essentially live entertainment for a while will likely have to be open air at very low capacity. Um, and I I think that's going to be, be hard for comedy. In fact, I've done I've done comedy in open air and even at full capacity, people spread out. And I, I think it's really weird when you articulate it like this, but I think part of what makes comedy work so well, even though it shouldn't, like comedy shouldn't work. It's a person pretending to be spontaneous and have a conversation that they've had a million times before with strangers, right? Like there's something about that that shouldn't work. And, and part of what makes it work is kind of the hostage situation that an audience is. It's like, mm-hmm you've got nothing to do but sit here and listen to me in tight space, aware of each other and the way, way like you're all responding. Um, which is why stand up on fucking zoom has been so hard. Have you seen some of this? I've seen, I only watched um, the King Kong and it was a wonderful car crash. Like I couldn't look away. I was so entertained by everything that was unfolding before me. But it just kind of reaffirmed my view that it's you can't do it without an audience. 
And I mean, like, the guy that won, Harry Wright, he's a, I think he's a great comic and he's um, sort of a friend of mine. But, um, like, he won the, he won the night and he, he's been, he's going to get offered a spot in, on their, one of their Saturday shows when the club reopens, when the club reopens again. And, um, my issue with that is that, well, you're going to be going from winning a competition on a computer screen to go into a live audience, which you're going to, after you've had about, what, three or so months off, and you're not going to be ready for it. I mean, yeah, I'm not sold on it at all. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, gong shows and, and the, their value in general, I mean, I not, don't want to get into, but what I think is interesting is that Zoom definitely works more for a, a particular kind of comedian. Like, I think you have to be either, like, there's two, two uh, and, and here I go making rules again, but like, I, I feel like <laughs> there are two ways that, that work most well. And one is if you're a bit interactive and a bit chatty and you, you, you kind of reintroduce spontaneity into the mix, I think that, that I've seen work well. Um, and the other is if you just fucking go absurd, right? Like I, I think mm. the more the closer you get to sketch and performance or absurdity, the 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 easier it is to translate. Um, that's why, like I I did one, I hated it, and I, I decided if I do it again, like I'm not even gonna do stand up. I'm just gonna like do weird shit on screen, like eat a chili and take a shot of scotch and see what happens, and then react to the way that goes. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, and that's that's um, yeah, because with sketch you don't really necessarily need an audience, do you? I mean, it helps, but you don't need the audience to actually technically be there right in, right in front of you. You can actually do that online. So yeah, I completely see where you're coming from there. Because I think with stand up, it is very much like we're feeding off the audience and the, and the comedian are feeding off each other and without that something is really lost not just that it's also like you need people's attention and on zoom or, or whatever recorded medium like people can check their email there's people coming in and out you know there's just so much to pull you away from actively listening yeah like because when you're actually in the club or wherever you are you can't help but actually well you have no choice really but to watch that comedian. Yeah, that's it. That's about what you said, hostage situation and where, yeah. Um, yeah, I, um, I think I'm a bit like you in that I've kind of got an idea when I'd like to be back on stage. And that's like, whenever, whenever they say, whenever they say it's okay for it to happen and whenever, whenever nights start opening up again, I think I'm going to go, I think I'm going to start doing it a month after everyone else. We had, yeah. we had that very unifying, scary experience, didn't we, at a gig where uh, <laughs> an act walked into the room and said, hey, shook your hand, I believe. Yeah. And then yeah. actually, before we go any further, I should let you know I've got back from three countries that have coronavirus. That was an absolutely, that, uh, I mean... I'm kind of lost for words. I mean, I'm still trying to figure out that act's thought process in doing that or even saying that when you're in a green room full of people and after making physical contact with someone out with someone else before actually mentioning this is the MacGuffin and the elephant in the room. 
it was it was a strange time it was and what was kind of what, what made it even weirder was when i went back up to the green room to get my stuff the act um turned to me and said oh i hope no one's left the room because of me and i had to make up a bit of a bullshit story so like no we, we all just wanted to be down in the audience to feel see what everything see everything that's going on and yeah that was um other than that that was a fun night though so uh, the reason that we're talking about this, other than to chat about comedy and your special, is to talk about the film Made in Manhattan. Yeah, let's get into Made in Manhattan. Have you seen the film before? Um, I had not. So I watched it for the first time on Tuesday. Ah, nice. Um, I, through weird circumstances, when it came out in like 2002, 2003, whenever it was, um, I having to see it at the cinema around three times, three separate times. Like once because me and my, once because me and my friend we actually kinda of wanted to go see it because we had crushes on Jennifer Lopez. I mean, we were like twelve, so that was completely that was yeah, it'd be weird if you if we're not weird, but like it'd be abnormal. Um so first time so we went to go we actually decided to go see it and it turns out we kinda liked it. Second time, um those, we went to the cinema, the film we wanted to go see wasn't on, and the only film that we could have seen at that time was Made in Manhattan, so we went to go see it again. The third time, my friend's mum wanted to go see it, and so we had to go see it with her. So the first note, because I, I, I had my phone open making notes just in case there was something I want to remember. The origin story of Nathan falling in love with Made in Ma- Manhattan answers my first note <laughs> is why though? Um, what, I'm, what I'm kind of trying to do at the moment is I'm looking at films because, you know, obviously I've got all the bloody time in the world at the moment. I'm looking at films that I saw when I was younger and seeing whether or not they hold up. And, you know, without going into it, without going into it um, too deep, um, this, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's about Jennifer Lopez who plays a maid. And, you know, what really struck me in the first, like, 30 seconds... They try so hard in this film to make Jennifer Lopez look like a normal person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it is like the classic teenage movie trope, except this isn't necessarily a teenage movie, but I guess the classic rom-com trope where the lead female character ha- is an undeniable 10 out of 10 babe, but they... Mm try to dress them down for 70% of the movie so that when the big reveal happens, it's like, oh, my God, the male lead didn't realise what was there all along. And it's like, dude, she's Jennifer Lopez before the film, she's <laughs> Jennifer Lopez after. Like, there's no hiding that. No. Um, she is absolutely stunning in no matter what she, no matter what she wears. But the fact that they have to try so hard to make her look frumpy is... Ins- is actually insane. So she works as a as a maid in a hotel. Um, turns out that there's a senator who stay who's staying there at the same time. And through a weird circumstances, some weird circumstances, she tries on some. She's in someone. Else. I'm trying to get more bloody words out. She's cleaning his room. She then. Accident. She then mis- um, takes on the identity of, of someone else who stays in the ho- who stay- who's staying in the hotel, so that she can date this senator. And it's basically a comedy that could be explained. Well, it doesn't really need to be 
that much of a uh, I was trying to think of a fucking word um, that doesn't need to be that much of an issue if the characters just spoke to each other and talked yes <laughs> do you know what it is it, it, it is um, it is a little bit very very dumbed down it, it, I mean to be fair fans of Shakespeare are going to come for my head when I say this but it's like the watered-down version of a Twelfth Night. It's a mistaken identity. Yeah. Who are you? Um, but I, do you know what? I, I think this, what, what I find so interesting about it as, as where it sits in cinematic history is that it is, <laughs> it is so middle of the road that, like, it's not bad enough that it's so bad that it's good but it's not good enough that you remember, watch it and go, oh, I remember why I like this. It's just like, oh, I can't believe that there is a whole, like, 10 years of movies that are varying degrees of this and we watched it over and over again. Yeah. Um, I have to say, though, J-Lo's not bad in this. Like, she's perfectly watchable, not just like in the, um, the visual aesthetics sense. I mean, like, she's kind of likeable as this character, like, even though she does make some stupid mistakes. I, I have two things on that. I think J-Lo doesn't get enough... I'm going to say it. I'm talking truth to power today. I think J-Lo doesn't get enough credit as an actor. Um, yeah, agreed. In Hustlers, she's fucking... Like, that whole movie is fantastic, and she is such a good, likeable bad guy. I think it is, yeah, I think... Doesn't get enough credit as an actor. That that's one talking truth to power. Come at me, the man. Um, hmm. And then the second thing I think is funny is that this movie comes out at kind of peak Jenny from the Block era, and that's she exactly what I was thinking is trying so hard to be Jenny from the Block. Yeah, I mean she's there's, there's even bits where they even talk about the Bronx because the guy that she's because the senator that she's. Um, sort of dating who's played by Ray Fiennes, right? He's a, he's a Republican guy and he clearly, he's, he sort of wants to speak on social issues, but clearly has absolutely no idea what he's talking about. Cause he's never associated with people from like, say the areas like the Bronx. Right. And because of that, JLo, like, as, as near well, close, Claire, when it almost comes time for the big reveal, she starts talking about where she came from and starts kind of lecturing him about, okay, you shouldn't just be saying shit at these big, like fat, like million dollar meetings that you go, that you go to actually go and spend time with these people and understand where they come from. Do you know what I found hilarious about that as well? As somebody who had not watched the movie is that when she drops that it's about three quarters of the way into the movie, she, she, yeah. Him the, the bit of life advice that he's talking about people he doesn't understand. And so in my head, I'm like, oh, classic setup. At the end of the movie, he's going to show her that he is a man of his word and has grown by coming to the Bronx and, and, and you know, spending time with her people. Not, never ca- happens again. Not raised nope. one. Does he grow as a character? Not at all. No, he doesn't. Um, but he doesn't need to. He's Ray Fiennes, and Ray Fiennes can do what the fuck he wants. Um, yeah, but that's true. That is fucking true. Like he doesn't grow as a character and it kind of has the message of, yeah, to be happy, you need to be rich and successful, rich, successful and handsome. Yeah, that's right. Um, speaking of Ray Fiennes, what the fuck was his accent? 
Yeah, I have no idea. Um, although uh, two nights before I watched this, I watched Knives Out where Daniel Craig does a Texan accent. And so yep. I can't judge anybody's accent after that. That was horrendous. It was, yeah, Knives Out, was, I've, I've seen Knives Out as well. And I think that that was knowingly horrendous. That was very much Kentucky, uh, Kentucky Fried uh, Colonel Sanders accent. Whereas this, I think he was genuinely trying to be a, well, wherever in America he thought he was from. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is. Uh, it, it was impossible to place. Although that may be, he's supposed to be a New Yorker, right? He's running for New uh, York Senate, Senate. That's why he's visiting Manhattan so often. Mm. Does that mean that he's from New York, though? Or does that mean that he that's just the constituency? But his dad was also a New York senator, so you'd imagine if his dad was serving there that he, unless his dad sent him off to boarding school somewhere else, in which mm. case, poorly explained backstory and not deserving of such a shit accent. By poorly explained backstory, you mean not explained at all? Yeah. Okay. That, just, so, just so we're on the same page. Um, um, oh, at this point, we are making hypothetical excuses for a shitty accent that didn't need to exist. Yeah. Um, I like the kid in this movie. He was quite fun. Yeah. He was, um, I mean, he was... Less irritating than most child actors are. Yes. I, <laughs> I think... He was a very good example of what most adults think a good and smart kid would be like. Yeah. I just love the fact that um, somewhere in Hollywood, around about 2001 to 2002, thought it would be a great idea to have a film where the 11-year-old loves nothing but Simon and Garfunkel. And Richard Nixon. <laughs> Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of weird because you wouldn't ex like someone that grows up in his grew up in his circumstance or, not, or in because um, this is J Lo that well in the movie J Lo's got a son right and this is the kid we're talking about right you wouldn't expect someone from their background to have to look up to Republican to look up to anyone from the Republican Party but but. Although modern politics teaches us different people, uh, politics is complex and people don't always understand the way in which the way they vote impacts them. Mm. I well, think that's actually, yeah. Oh, go, go, go. There's actually a point in the film where the kid meets uh, Ray Fiennes' character and Stanley Tucci, who we'll, we'll get onto in a second. And Stanley Tucci asks him, who do you, who, um, are you Democrat or Republican? The kid just goes, what's the difference these days? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, do you know what I found funny about the, the kid and, and the moment that just stuck with me more than I imagine it would stick with most when you watch it? Go for it. In the opening scene, like the credits happen, it's a Simon, uh, it's a Paul Simon song. Yeah, it is. As the song fades out, J-Lo starts talking to her kid about the same Paul Simon song and it's like a weird meta mm. reference of what the audience is seeing influencing their their lives on screen. Um, mm -hmm. And when I saw that, I'm like, oh, wow, this, is, this movie 
tried to be a lot cleverer than I expected it to be. Not in a way that I enjoy, by the way. I think it's pretentious. But then that's the only pretentious thing that happens in the movie. The rest of it is like such middle ground rom-com stuff. Uh, it's so misleading. Yeah. Um, I. What did you think of Stanley Tucci in this movie? Uh, Stanley Tucci in this movie, his character is, uh, it's so funny because he, for, for those who haven't watched it, he plays the, he, he plays the PR guy of the politician, the Senator. Um, but because the movie is set essentially in a hotel 90% of the time, despite the fact they move, um, he's forced to play the character of the reluctant best friend. Um, yeah, because and, he's Stanley Tucci. Yeah, and it's so weird to have this guy who is like an overreaching PR guy fulfill that role because there's so many times where you're just like, dude, know your lane, none of your business. <laughs> yeah, again, that kind of relationship wasn't explained, but because it's Stanley Tucci, he steals every scene that he's in and I'm very grateful for his presence at all times. That's true. It's a, it's a star-studded cast. Yeah, it's really good. It's got um, Natasha Richardson's in it. I mean, rest in peace. Um, she plays the British heiress, the heiress socialite who J-Lo steals the identity from. Um, it's got Amy Sedaris in it as the semi-racist, as a, well, not semi-racist, very racist friend of Natasha Richardson's character, and she gets her comeuppance, which is great. Um, it's got... It's, uh, yeah, it, it does have a much bit, a much better cast than a film like that. Well, film like this would usually get or deserve, but I think it's <laughs> it's perfectly fine. Like it's it's one of those movies where like I'm I'm not going to say I'm never going to watch it again because like I I nine times there's every likelihood that I actually will, but as you said, it is so middle of the road like you can't it is just one of those it's just one of those films you have on whilst you're doing the ironing or something isn't it yeah so for me i i think uh it's hard for me to answer that question because for me it is a film that you watch to prepare for a podcast you're about to do um (laughs) (laughs) but i uh I do think it is, it is like, it's inoffensive midday, like, or, you know, Wednesday night movie fodder. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's forgettable, but never offensive. Um, I also find, I I, I just find watching this style, because this is a genre of movie, like this style of unashamedly trope heavy, like, the, the I guess the classic Gen Y rom-com doesn't get made like this so much anymore. Um, and I did think it was funny just the way that some of the tropes are just crowbarred in. There's no reason for them to happen. Like um, the, the butler, Bob Haskins' character, when he oh, resigns yes. when J-Lo gets fired, it's like, we have seen nothing up until this point to suggest you guys have a relationship that would want you to do that. And then mm. all of a sudden, not only are you resigning because she's got fired, but then also you're giving the dad speech. Like, where has this come from? 
And we're also in movie land where you don't need to give a month's notice. You can just hand in your papers and leave, skipping out the door. Got to be honest, you could do that all the time. You'd just lose your annual leave. Ah, okay. Did not know that. I mean, not that I'm looking to quit my job anytime soon, but that's interesting information. Didn't know that. So um, the rating system I've got for these things, just to sort of wrap it up, is if you thought it was absolute dog shit, put it in the bin. If you thought it was okay, stream it on Netflix. If you thought it was amazing, give it a full price. What would you? What would you do? What would you rate this? Oh, you've really, you've really taken any kind of middle ground away from me. Um, <laughs> and I, I appreciate that. Uh, just to, to I, uh, I, I think I like to rate jokes on a one to three scale, actually a mm. one to two scale, because I think if you have a middle ground, you never like, you're always like, ah, it's roughly in the middle. Um, but in the context of this movie, uh, I'm going to have to say, put it in the bin. I'm sorry. I know that, 12-year-old Nathan is, is feeling a little bit judged by that, but got to go in the bin. <laughs> oh, fair enough, man. I'm going to say a, the low end of stream it on Netflix because it's not terrible, it's not great, and you probably won't hate yourself after watching it. Mm. <laughs> you disagree? <laughs> I, I, I've got to be honest, I, I did spend a lot of the time watching it thinking about other things I could do with my time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. That's, yeah, that's fine. That's perfectly that you're entitled to that opinion. Uh, so, Anthony, where can people find you, man? Um, so, on May 3rd, uh, the album's coming out, as we discussed earlier. That'll be on Spotify. It'll be on Apple Music. Uh, Bandcamp, Google Play, all of those, those sort of stuff. The, the album's Anthony Jeannot stand-up comedy album because uh, I'm jacking search volume. Um, <laughs> and besides that, I'm on Twitter, Anthony, uh, Anthony Jeannot. I'm on Instagram, Anthony Jeannot. I'm on Facebook, Anthony Jeannot. Uh, that's J-E-A-N-N-O-T. Uh, and let's face it, we're all stuck inside with nothing else to do but Tweet exactly. on Instagram. So I'm, I'm pretty active. Today I spent about an hour taking requests from friends on which power I should <laughs> speak truth to and then sticking it to the man about subjects as controversial as the people who always get lucky enough to buy Park Lane and Mayfair in Monopoly. <laughs> Brilliant, man. Um, all right. So that's it. It's been good talking to you, man. You too. Pleasure. Take care. Stay safe and look forward to catching up when this is done. Sweet. In a bit. Bye. Bye.